I can see you right now in the kitchen, bending over a hot stove. But I can't see the stove. This magnificent chest. No, this mag. No, this magnificent chest. I'm the plumber. I'm just hanging around in case something goes wrong with our pipes. That's the first time I've used that joke in 20 years. Is it true you're getting a divorce as soon as your husband recovers his eyesight? Is it true you wash your hair in clam broth? Is it true you used to dance in a flea circus? This is outrageous! Sheriff, hunga-dunga, 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 and McCormick. You've left out a hunga-dunga. You left out the main one, too. You might have some tomato juice, orange juice, grape juice, pineapple juice. Hey, turn off the juice before I get electrocuted. <laughs> Why, a four-year-old child could understand this report. Run out and find me a four-year-old child. I can't make head or tail out of it. So Groucho Marx, Julius Henry Marx, was born in 1890 and passed away in 1977. So why would I, a man born in 1988, give two you-know-whats about Groucho Marx? Because he's hilarious. He's uh, way ahead of his time and arguably the head of the Marx Brothers, one of the funniest people on the planet at his time, and I would even venture to say right now, too. If you go back in time, hello, everybody. It's the Check My Brain podcast. Tony Mazur here with you. And we're going to talk a little Groucho today, talk about the Marx Brothers. And uh, my guest uh, here on this podcast is Steve Stolier, and he is the author of Raised Eyebrows. Now, he wrote this book in 1996. It's been reprinted a couple of times. There were even rumors and possibility of a movie even directed by Rob Zombie. And uh, you'll hear whether or not the movie is going to happen in the podcast as well. But we get to talk a little bit about the history of the Marx Brothers, the Paramount films versus the MGM films, whatever you think was better or worse. Some say the, uh, the, some of those MGM films like uh, uh, Day at the Races and Night at the Opera are some of the best. Others will say, ah, eh, they start to slow down and not be as good with the, uh, the jokes and... Yeah, they weren't they weren't the freshest and the duck soup and animal crackers and some of the early ones were a lot better. We get into talking a lot about all of that, so get a chance to hear that. And also the reason why I got to talk to Steve is and why he wrote this book is in the final three years of Groucho's life, he got to work with Groucho. Groucho was not necessarily bedridden, but uh, some parts of it he was. And Steve Stolier had an opportunity to be there and kind of be Groucho's personal assistant. And you get to hear a little story about that as well. And it, it was a great conversation. Unfortunately, I, I mean, I could have done four hours with Steve. But uh, when I was recording this in a studio, I had just a limited amount of studio space and time. So I was only able to do as much as I did, which is about 50 minutes. So I hope you enjoy this uh, this interview I did with Steve Stolier. This is another one of those where I wasn't able to get the Zoom working. So the audio quality is phone. It's a phoner, but I did what I could. So uh, if you enjoyed the conversation, uh, leave a good review. If you didn't, uh, don't leave any review at all. Just listen to it and just hope you enjoyed it. So here's my conversation with Steve Stolier, author of the book, Raised Eyebrows. Sing, Groucho. <laughs> oh, Lydia, oh, Lydia, say, have you met Lydia? Lydia, the tattooed lady. She has eyes that men adore so, and a torso even more so. Lydia, oh, Lydia, that encyclopedia. Oh, Lydia, the queen of tattoo. On her back is the Battle of Waterloo. Besides Tony Mazur here, and I've been looking forward to this interview for many, many years because I've been a big fan of his. I've been a big fan of his book. And I've been a big fan of Groucho Marx my entire life. I'm a 31-year-old who was raised on the Marx Brothers, and uh, may, not a lot of 31-year-olds may have been raised on the Marx Brothers, but they have influenced generations of young men, but a lot of people for the last, oh, 90 years since the Coconuts, and maybe even before if you saw some of their stage productions. But uh, I am joined here by author. He's, uh, he's also written for uh, television shows as well. He's a great impressionist, so we'll hear a little more about that. From Steve Stolier, he's the author of the book Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House. And Steve worked with Groucho in his final few years and gave an interesting perspective of somebody that we think of from the 1930s and 40s into the 50s with uh, You Bet Your Life, but 
What was he like in the 1970s and some of the tumultuousness that was happening, but also a lot of some fun things as well that were happening. And uh, uh, Steve, good to have you on. Thanks for joining us here. It's a pleasure to be here. I could just go on listening to you talk about me. That's fine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I'll stroke your ego a few times uh, throughout this interview. So I, okay. I hope uh, I, the, the more we do it, the more I'm, you might, we might have to take each other to dinner and have a cigarette okay. afterward. <laughs> I'll have to start smoking, but okay. That's right. So, uh, well, Steve, what's, what's interesting, like I mentioned, at my age, not a lot of 31-year-olds were into the Marx yes, Brothers. Yes, it's, it's uh, heartening to hear that because um, I've stopped taking for granted that anyone under 50 can really place the Marx Brothers. And I'm being generous there, under 50. Um, I mean, my peers will say, can you believe I was talking to someone and they didn't know who Dorothy Parker was or they didn't know who W.C. Fields was? And it's like I, I've stopped being surprised by that, and now I find it gratifying when someone says, you know, my uh, nine-year-old granddaughter was laughing at Harpo. We had monkey business on the TV or something. And I think, oh, it's very, it's rewarding to know that the kids today, some of them are are sharp enough to appreciate it. Because in, in the 70s, I was these kids today, and it was uh, heartening to Groucho and his peers, this his writer friends who were in their 70s and 80s, that there was this kid, because I was like 19 when I was dropped into that world, <clears throat> and I knew all about those things, and the Algonquin Roundtable and George Gershwin and the Marx Brothers, and you know, I wasn't just a, a pot-smoking hippie that was listening to rock and roll. And so they thought, well, maybe there's hope for this world if there's kids like this that know about us. And now that I'm recently turned 65 i've become one of those who whose 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 heart cockles are warmed by hearing that you're 31 and uh are an avid fan and grew up with an appreciation for them yeah and one thing about the marx brothers that was interesting in reading your book and seeing how they had that resurgence in the 1970s so you had uh, Chico died in 61, Harpo in, in 63. Uh, by the Four. way, my cat's name is Harpo, so it, uh, oh. <laughs> it all kind of works itself out. But, Does uh, he meow silently? Uh, well, he, well, he makes noises, yes. He makes some noises, oh. and he doesn't talk, so uh, okay. <laughs> it kind of works out. But uh, the, the one thing is the baby boomers really kind of had that resurgence with the Marx Brothers by the 1970s because their parents seemed to be into them because of Harpo's antics and Groucho's one-liners. But the baby boomers saw it almost in a different way where there was a little more of a message behind them, and Duck Soup was an anti-war film as the Vietnam War is happening. So while their parents were like, oh, this is a good movie, it's funny and zany. The baby boomers looked at it and said, this is great social commentary here. Well, I have several things to say. Which would you like to hear first? Uh, pick the second one, then go with the fourth, and then the first. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, my father saw the Marx Brothers films in first run when, when uh, he, was, he was born in 1916, so he was already an adolescent when their first film came out, and he loved their stuff. Um, and then there was something about the iconoclastic, anti-establishment nature of Groucho and the Marx Brothers that appealed to the baby boomers. Um, also, W.C. Fields and Mae West, the, th the three of them had a resurgence in the late 60s and 70s that some of the other comedians who had made films in the 30s didn't experience. I remember uh, taking a film class at UCLA, and the professor said, people now think that the biggest comedy stars in the box office-wise in the 30s were the Marx Brothers and Mae West and W.C. Fields, but it, it isn't true. The biggest at the time were Joey Brown, Will Rogers, and Eddie Cantor, who today probably have maybe 12 fans combined. Um, their stuff doesn't hold up quite as well. I've heard a lot of bad but, Eddie Cantor stories, especially what wasn't a Park Your Carcass was his sidekick. Yes, right, who was Albert Einstein's father, not Albert Einstein, 
the physicist, but Albert Brooks, who changed his name from Einstein. And what kind of father names his child Albert Einstein and not and doesn't expect him to get the shit kicked out of him at school? <laughs> but, that, but I digress. Um, anyway, um, the thing about uh, Duck Soup being an anti-war film causes me to bristle a bit <clears throat> on Groucho's behalf because it is seen now as a satire on the futility of war, political satire. And it can be viewed as such now, but it is a mistake to think that that was anyone's intention who was connected with the film. They were just trying to be funny, and they had put Groucho in charge of a hotel and coconuts. He was in charge of a school and horse feathers. And it's like, well, what other setting can we put Groucho that would lend itself to comedy? Let's make him the head of a country. Um, W.C. Fields had done it the year earlier at Paramount with uh, Million Dollar Legs, where he was the president of Klopstakia, and another one of those mythical European countries. So, you know, it used to sort of amuse and annoy Groucho when people would analyze the Marx Brothers films for meaning and deep stuff when in fact you know I mean uh, Joe Adamson who wrote the excellent Groucho Harpo Chico and sometimes Zeppo book uh, actually interviewed Leo McCary who was still around when Joe was writing the book and McCary said it's ludicrous when I hear people say oh duck soup was a political satire and biting anti-war, and it was the same year that Hitler came to power and Franklin Roosevelt, and it's all coincidental. So you you can get out of it what you want, but to credit or ascribe the intention of making uh, an anti-war film, uh, that was not in the minds of anyone connected with it in '33. So I thought I would set the record straight, uh, or as... Steve Allen said in a letter to me, which is more than my pioneer turntable can do. <laughs> well, because well, I think by the 70s, and this is just based on a uh, little experience with talking to people around that time, is that people wanted, and, and some boomers wanted a little more meaning behind their entertainment. They didn't just want to watch uh, Green Acres, and they don't want to watch Petticoat Junction and have yeah. a, a set-up punchline and Mr. Haney and Mr. Uh, Mr. Yeah, Drucker. No, you, had you had television shows like The Smothers Brothers and then Saturday Night Live a little later on, and those had a lot to do. I mean, the, the Smothers Brothers sort of were canceled because they pushed the envelope a little too far. Um, and then Saturday Night Live took off because it didn't pull punches with its parodies of presidents and smoking pot and all that kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, the, these comedians from the 30s, I think that the general feeling back then was like, gee, where have these guys been hiding these guys are funny, and the stuff is fresh after all these years. Now it's a little rougher because it's been several generations since the boomers, and it asks more of people to understand what a lot of the references are. Um, but then, of course, they weren't new when, when I saw them. So That is and, true. Before we get to actual Groucho and your work with Groucho and how you got to know him and Aaron Fleming and everything else that happened in those three years, um, where would you rank, in a way, the Marx Brothers movies? Because I think uh, if you're a diehard or even a you know, somebody who's just a, a fan of theirs, not necessarily a diehard, you could probably almost throw out Go West, The Big Store, At the Circus. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> if you talk to the casual fan, they would say Night at the Opera, Day at the Races are the standard, when in reality, if you're a diehard Marx fan, those are kind of like the beginning of the end because they were the MGM right. films and the Paramount films, whether it's Duck Soup, Animal Crackers, um, you know, Monkey <clears throat> Business, Horse Feathers, that those are more of what re best represents the Marx Brothers. And you also had Zeppo there as well. Right. Uh, well, you just, you've essentially answered almost exactly what I would say. <laughs> so I will now rephrase what you just said and make it appear as if I'm making a point. Um, there are the purists, and and then there are 
you know, as you say, that the average people that watch some old movies catch them on TCM, that sort of thing. And, of course, you know, as the French say, uh, chacun son goût, which means to each his goût. No, it means to each his, <laughs> his own taste. And it's true, uh, there's no such thing as, uh, well, you're wrong because this movie's funnier. Or, no, that's the scariest horror movie. You're wrong with saying it was this one. Obviously, it's always uh, uh, subjective. But to the purists, uh, of which I am one, there is a, a, what I think of like a golden trinity of films that they did, uh, Monkey Business, Horse Feathers, and Duck Soup which were the first three films they did when they came to Hollywood from New York. Coconuts and Animal Crackers are wonderful. Um, archivally, they're great because we're seeing what essentially what two of their, their big stage successes looked like. But they were stage-bound also by the fact that there weren't boom microphones at the studios in Astoria, New York, so they had to stand near where the microphones were, and, um, you know, it's funny, before <clears throat> before they balanced out the DVD of Animal Crackers, I used to enjoy showing it to people and explaining about the stationary microphone, because you used to be able to see Zeppo whipping his head back and forth, saying, I represent the captain who just on my informing you of these conditions under which he comes here. And I would say that's because of that. But then, of course, the engineers who remaster it digitally, they decided they would, quote, fix that. So now you don't really have that when you watch the film. But anyway, when they came to California in 31 to do monkey business, they were really freed up by the boom microphone. And it's just like they were shot out of a cannon. And there's something about that trio of films after the after the broadway based films and before the shift to mgm those three golden paramount films that really i think are the purest and best stuff they did and yes for all of the uh derisive laughter and comments made about zeppo uh including by groucho himself you know he would say uh uh, in order to test to see if one of the jokes was funny, if Zeppo laughed, we took it out, <laughs> which you know, which isn't really true. But uh, you know, and people see see him as a, a fifth wheel, even though he was a fourth Marx brother. But there was something that he brought to it. There was there was a certain kinship, literally and figuratively, and chemistry. And once he left, he was never really satisfied being an actor. He joined the act in vaudeville when the first fourth brother, Gummo, was drafted during World War One, and Zeppo was pulled in when he was like 17, 16 years old. And uh, he, he knew no one was going because of him. He knew that all the laughs were to his older brothers, and he happily left the act after Duck Soup and then became a very, very successful agent, um, handling such obscure bit players as Clark Gable, Carol Lombard, Joan Crawford. Never heard uh, of them. Yeah, Barbara <laughs> Stanwyck, um, Robert Taylor. Anyway, uh, when they went to MGM, <clears throat> for Groucho, that was a colossal step up because MGM was the prestige studio. They had the top stars, the most money, the most lavish productions. So when producer Irving Thalberg uh, signed them up, actually what he said was he saw Duck Soup and he liked it, but he said there's too many jokes and audiences are laughing over the punchlines. I could make a film with you guys that has half as many laughs and makes twice as much money. Mm. And he was right, for better or for worse, because the first film they made at MGM was Night at the Opera, which many, 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 many people, including Groucho, would list as their favorite film of theirs. Um, and then Day at the Races 
followed it, and it, it, Day at the Races was their biggest money-making film of their 13 films. So Groucho was very, he had a real soft spot in his heart for, for Night at the Opera and Day at the Races, because to him it represented the ultimate success and the films were super successful. It's like, here we are, look, there's Clark Gable and Greta Garbo, and, and we've really made it. And, you know, after all the hard scrabble years of vaudeville and, you know, sleeping on trains and going from city to city, then losing his first fortune in the stock market crash in 29, um, that was really, I think that influenced his opinion of those films. Although they're very well made, and and indeed the production values are higher than they were at Paramount, but for the, those of us who are purists, the the films kind of get bogged down in plot, and the brothers seem to care too much about the hero getting the girl and and getting the goods on the villain. I mean, there's elements of that in their earlier films with uh, uh, the guy and the girl and hoping they get together. But the, the brothers seem to be doing their stuff in, in spite of that, not their whole reason for being to, to solve the crime and get the lovers together. So opera and races are perfectly respectable films, and a lot of people consider those their best um, but I, I am of the beginning of the end group in terms of when they went to MGM. Then when Thalberg died <clears throat> during the production of Day at the Races, Louis Mayer never really liked them, thought they were vulgar. So he didn't put the care into their films that Thalberg had. And Groucho offended him, right? Yeah, he, I think the mayor came to the set and, and said, how are things going? And he said, what business is it of yours? And it's his <laughs> studio. Uh, he didn't see the humor in that. But, um, uh, and then, of course, their later films, uh, At the Circus Go West, Big Store at MGM, I think all of their films you could put together clips and show them, and people would say, I don't understand why people say these movies are lousy. That was pretty good. Yes, you can find clips from all of their films. There's moments, yeah. That show them off to their best advantage. But in terms of consistently, also the Paramount films are like 75 minutes long. They zoom along. They're like the, you know, the Warner Brothers crime dramas of the early 30s. They just, there's no fat on the body at all. It's just... Like I said, like a, a shooting a, a cannonball, and then 75 minutes later, the credits roll. So, uh, unfortunately, they only made those 13 films, and unlike like Laurel and Hardy or The Three Stooges, there wasn't this library of short films that could be syndicated on television and shown over and over again. So a lot of people were much more familiar with uh, Laurel and Hardy and the Three Stooges simply because there was a steady diet of that on TV when they were growing up. And it was harder to see the Marx films and particularly hard to see Animal Crackers. Yes, and that, that's where you come in. Steve Stoller, the author of the book Raised Eyebrows, My Ears Inside Groucho's House, coming into the 1970s, like you said, that people were familiar with the Three Stooges and Laurel and Hardy and all, and the Bowery Boys, uh, even the right. Ritz Brothers, for Pete's sake. Yeah. <laughs> so they wanted to find a way to see these movies again. And get them, and then eventually, by the end of the 70s and the 80s, you had cable TV, and then you can see these a little, little bit more. But if it wasn't for your effort and, and when you were at UCLA to get Animal Crackers re-released, we may not have seen uh, the Marx Brothers. That I, I may not be a fan of theirs today and growing mm. up with them if it wasn't for uh, your effort, partially. Heaven for Fend. Well, thank you for saying that. <laughs> um, Animal Crackers was sort of the missing link in the 13 films it was their second film uh it was the you know based on their broadway show of the same name and when universal acquired the the old paramount films the pre-1948 paramount films in the late 50s um animal crackers was one of them but be, 
because of basically a clerical error, uh, the license had expired and the rights to the film have rev- had reverted back to the authors and composers of the play, George Kaufman, Maury Riskin, Burt Kalmer, and Harry Ruby. And Universal didn't think it was worth spending the money to untangle the legal knot uh, just to put out an old black-and-white Marx Brothers movie because people wanted to see things in color with current stars. But all of my friends who were Marx Brothers fans, which is redundant because all of my friends were Marx Brothers fans, were dying to see this movie because it had, it had Groucho as Captain Spaulding and his later his You Bet Your Life theme song, Hooray for Captain Spaulding. And famous bits were from it, but we couldn't see it. Uh, although there was an LP that was issued uh, in the early 70s that had excerpts from their Paramount films, and, and, of course, we'd all listen and memorize it because there was no such thing as VHS or DVDs then. And there was some stuff from Animal Crackers on it, and it was like, you know, a glimpse of the Holy Grail to hear that. I don't know how they were able to release bits of the soundtrack, but they were. But the film hadn't been seen in theaters uh, in re-release since the late 40s or early 50s had never been shown on television packaged with all the others that had that big shield saying uh mca tv release which always bothered me that it said uh mca instead of an mca but anyway um i i saw a bootleg print of it in a theater in orange county in late 73 and it was horrible it was dupey like 12th generation copy of a copy of a copy but my friends and I all drove down there and we couldn't believe we'd seen it and in my naivete I was thinking I wonder if Groucho knows it's playing down there maybe he'd like to see it if it hasn't been seen in years and I knew his number wasn't in the phone book but I knew also that Harry Ruby's phone number was in the phone book, and he was one of Groucho's longtime friends and, as I say, one of the people who worked on Animal Crackers. So I got my nerve together and called Harry Ruby's phone number, and a nurse answered saying he was taking a nap, but she would, but he would, she would give him the message. Uh, I think if he had answered the phone, none of what transpired would have happened because it wouldn't have been necessary to take my phone number down. But she took down the information, and then he called me. And at the time, it was the biggest thrill of my life, talking to Harry Ruby. He worked on, you know, Duck Soup, and he's all throughout the Groucho letters and knew him since vaudeville and all this. And he said, well, I'll tell Groucho about this. And I thought, oh, my God, He's going to tell Groucho that I said something. And then shortly after that, I got a phone call from Aaron Fleming, who was the woman who by then had become almost entirely in charge of Groucho's life. She was a younger aspiring actress that had started out as his secretary. And then as he got older and weaker and and was having strokes and health problems, He grew more dependent on her, and so she was really calling the shots in terms of his schedule and what he would agree to do and the TV appearances and stuff. And she wanted to know how this theater was able to show this, what gave them the right, as if I had any insight into the legalities of how they got this movie. But she, she wanted to take me with her to to universal as sort of exhibit a of a human being who would drive all the way to orange county in the midst of a gas crisis <laughs> to see animal crackers to prove that it wasn't just her and groucho who wished it it would re- it would be re-released and uh then they had to leave so we hung up and in the meantime i hit on the idea of a petition drive rather than just bringing me there to show that there were many, many people who would would like to see this movie. 
and uh, uh, I was going to UCLA then, and and uh, I started the committee for the re-release of Animal Crackers with some friends of mine, and we set up a table on Bruin Walk, and people would, you know, that they were harassed to sign petitions about legalizing marijuana and stopping the war in Vietnam and gay rights, you know, things that are no longer issues that have all been taken well, care of. Well, of course. Of, no con- no Sunshine and roses. And, he- and here yeah, you are yeah. uh, with the petition saying, yeah, we want this uh, 42-year-old Marx Brothers movie released. Yeah. So people say, and they said, do, do we have to be uh, registered voters? Is the FBI going to get it? Because this was during... Watergate, when everyone was suspicious of putting their names down on things, it was people coming up with clipboards and stuff. Anyway, uh, Aaron Fleming arranged for Groucho to come to UCLA. Um, I finally got to meet my hero, which was just a jaw-dropping experience. And because you I saw said, him, right. you saw him what two years earlier at the Dorothy Chandler, yeah, and I got, to, I saw him. It, with his one-man show, from I mean, they were the tickets were nine dollars and fifty cents, which you will, will not even get you parking at the Dorothy Chandler now. But at the time, that was a lot of money, and I didn't have uh, a good seat. But it, it was still galvanizing, realizing that I was seeing Groucho Marx, although a distant speck, shuffling out to the podium. And I was really struck by how old and creaky he had gotten. And I was angry at the press for having perpetuated the idea that good old Groucho, 80 years old and just as sharp as ever. And instead, you know, he's saying, first I'd like to take a bow for Hoppo and Chico. And I'd like to thank you all. For... And I thought, what? where's Groucho? Who is this old man? <laughs> and I thought, well, that's that's it. He'll be... I'm sure he'll be dead soon, but but I still clapped so hard that I think my hands were still stinging the next morning. And as a little extra, uh, in the parking garage of the Dorothy Chandler, I recognized Zeppo because I had seen some recent pictures of him. And I thought, well, I'll never meet Groucho, but damn it, I'm going to meet a Marx brother. So I went over and I said, excuse me, Mr. Marx, but... I'm a big fan of your your movies. And he said, well, you didn't like me. You were laughing at my brothers. And I mm. thought, well, that was, thank you for your graciousness. <laughs> <laughs> but, and he was having trouble finding his car, so I think he was kind of annoyed. And in retrospect, I'm sure he felt bad that Groucho was in such bad shape that night, seeing his brother up there reading off in index cards and and uh, in a kind of whispery voice, but this was uh, during the I, was this during the Groucho? This was the uh, beret era. He was wearing that beret all the time. Yeah, Sometimes they had the right. little golf balls on top when he'd be on the Dick Cavett show. Yeah, yeah, he tended to wear a beret for the astonishing reason that it kept the bald top of his head warm. Oh, of course, it was practical. <laughs> it wasn't uh, pretentiousness. So then, so then so, you. Uh, so it's nineteen. So by the way, uh, for fl- folks listening, I'm talking to Steve Stolier. He is the author of the book "Raised Eyebrows: My Years Inside Groucho's House." Available at stevestolier.com and on Amazon. Go pick it up. It's a great book. I've read it several times, as you can tell, because I'm very prepared uh, for the interview. Um, uh, and I've recommended if they, it. If they go to my website, thestevestolier.com. Uh, they can order copies, and I'll be happy to sign or inscribe them to whomever they wish. Um, if they just want to get the book itself or the Kindle version or the audio book with me doing all the voices, uh, that can easily be found on Amazon, not along the Amazon. I've had a lot of people fly to Brazil uh, mistakenly believing that that is where they're sold. It is not on the Amazon. It is on Amazon. They're not on the Amazon. They're just in denial, right? Ah, yeah, exactly. Miami yes. River. Uh, I know. All right. Yes. So, uh, but your book is about working with Groucho. So you go from seeing him at the Dorothy Chandler. You bring him in a couple of years later to re-release Animal Crackers. Then you happen on a whim to basically you were kind of trying to figure your stuff out during the summertime. So you ended up calling Erin Fleming. And she was inundated with all these requests for autographs and everything, and she needed to be more of Groucho's caretaker. 
and was interested in having an assistant. So all of a sudden you go from, I'm a big Marx Brothers fan to, holy crap, I'm working at Groucho Marx's house in Beverly Hills. Yeah. I mean, when I met him at UCLA, I said, Groucho, I'm very happy to be meeting you after all this time. And he said, well, you should be. (laughs) And then Aaron Fleming said, this is Steve Stoliar. He's the one trying to get Animal Crackers re-released. And Groucho said, did you get it? And I said, not yet, but we're working on it. And he said, you better get it or I'll fire you. And I said, I didn't realize I was working for you. How much are you paying me? And he said, a little less than nothing. (laughs) So that was our initial meeting, which was, of course, marvelous. And then because I had some summer jobs fall through and my dad was saying, get off your fanny and get out there and get a job, I thought I have nothing to lose by calling Aaron and asking if there's anything that I could do. They did, by the way, release, re-release the film. We, we sort of embarrassed Universal into saying, okay, fine, we'll put it out, we'll have a, in New York and L.A., we'll show it, and that's it, and we don't want to hear about it. And it ended up breaking the box office record at the U.A. Westwood that the French Connection had set several years earlier. So that was very gratifying. And uh, Aaron said, yes, actually, we need someone who knows about the Marx Brothers to handle Groucho's fan mail and organize all of his memorabilia. For And I'm thinking, please, 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 please. please. And it, in my mind's eye, it's like a... Tex Avery cartoon where she's still talking on the phone and I'm knocking on the front door. Because <laughs> yep. um, I figured when, if I were hired for this job she was describing, that I'd probably work in some office building on Wilshire Boulevard and maybe Groucho would come in once a month to sign checks or something like that. She said, Oh, no, dear, you'll work right inside his house. There's a room here. That used to be his last wife's painting studio. You could use that for your office, and you can make your own hours. And they were going to pay me to do this, to go to Groucho's house, have lunch with him, meet all of these people coming through his door, and just immerse myself in original, rare photos, scripts, letters, clippings, posters, plus interacting with my hero in the comfort of his own home, where I realized that I had sold him short in terms of how much of Groucho was still there, because when he wasn't standing on on a stage with 10,000 people staring at him, there was a lot of the old Groucho that was still there, and it was still his reflexive nature to twist words and... uh, I mean, he used to look forward to getting the uh, Hollywood trade papers each day. Then he'd come to the lunch table and kind of review the mail. And one day he said, wonderful mail you brought me, nothing but requests for money. (laughs) And I said, but you got a variety, didn't you? And he said, yes, a variety of requests for money, which is something he would have said at any point in the proceedings. Or uh, one Christmas he got a tin of candied nuts from Fred Allen's widow and he was walking past my room and he said send her one of my Christmas cards and I said don't don't you want to say anything personal and he said well tell her thanks for the nuts hope you're the same (laughs) and it was always so heartwarming just when you'd think he was getting too old and creaky to bother with that it was still there. It just had, you know, had taken some hits and gotten a bit rusty, but it was very gratifying when he would do that. And then the people who came through the door, I was able to meet comfortably because even if they didn't know who I was, you know, maybe they thought I was his grandson or something, they figured I had a reason for being there. So no matter how big a star they were, <clears throat> if I was on the inside of Groucho's house, I must have been okay. So I was able to meet um, Bob Hope and Mae West and Steve Allen and S.J. Perelman and Dick Cavett and just all of these. Also, the people uh, behind, I mean, the people who helped make his films, Maury Riskin, Nat Perrin, um, Irving Brecker, 
um, and from the TV show George Fenneman and the the or- Fenement. the orchestra Fenement, yes after the chocolated laxative of the same name, <laughs> as Groucho would call. Uh, and it was just this, you know, remarkable atmosphere. to be. It was, and it was a very egalitarian household. I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't expected to eat in the kitchen with the help. Um, I was expected at the lunch table. If it was just Groucho, that was fine. And if someone, you know, if Jack Lemon was coming over, that was fine, too. And I would, you know, watch them converse and sometimes add my own two centavos for whatever that was worth and listen to these guys back and forth. Got to meet Zeppo and Gummo, the extant Marx brothers. And not a lot of people can say this, but Zeppo and I ended up dating the same girl. She was 19, I was 20, and he was 74. Yeah, just a little age difference, but, uh, you know, we've seen crazier yeah. stories, Anna Nicole Smith and others over time. Yes. So it was just, and it was a real best of times, worst of times, because I'm getting to know my hero much more intimately than I would have just from the back of the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion or at a revival house watching Duck Soup. But I'm also watching him fade out slowly and having to contend with the mercurial Aaron Fleming, who was very, very uh, volatile and abusive um, verbally and emotionally. She would have screaming fits that would cause Groucho to tremble, and his blood pressure would would go sky high. And it was very frustrating because he, he was very fond of her and had grown dependent on her, and the household staff felt like if somehow she could be removed, it might be worse for him, like taking a, a heroin addict off the needle cold turkey could you know, bring on a heart attack or something. So we were never quite sure. You know, we, we suspected he might be better off without her and her frequent outbursts. But then who would look after things and what kind of a toll would that take on him? So it was a real difficult juggling act. And bear in mind, I was 20 years old and had never had to deal with people with volatile personalities and psychological problems. Um, But I ended up being the longest surviving employee, except for Arturo the gardener, who was literally and figuratively on the outside. But... All sorts of cooks and uh, nurses and business associates came and went. Aaron ruled with an iron fist, and Groucho tended to let her decide who stays and who goes. But it was, I mean, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I don't want to paint too dark a picture. It is sort of like, you know, Dorothy at the end of, of Oz saying, well, you know, some of it was terrible, but most of it was wonderful, or whatever she says. And that really was, you know, going through his his door was like when Oz turns to Technicolor and after her house lands in Munchkin Land. Yeah, it and and, and but it's bittersweet because I, I I have to ask you because we only have a few more minutes here. I got a okay. studio space that unfortunately, but uh, yeah. um, but your three years you're working there. And I've I do stand up. I've worked in radio. I've covered sports teams and you know concerts and everything. And over time, you kind of you you get over that starstruck feeling where I'm in the locker room and I'm standing next to Jim Brown and then LeBron James is over here and then I'm at a concert. James Hetfield from Metallica is over here and I've uh-huh. opened for a lot of comedians that I've uh, I've really admired and that kind of starstruck feeling goes away. But did that? But but for me, because I kind of have to working in this business. In 1977, Grouch was basically at death's door. Were you still feeling that butterfly feeling that you got three years prior in 1974? Well, I finally mercifully got used to the idea that someone wasn't going to grab me by the shoulders and say, I'm terribly sorry, we've made a huge mistake, you were never supposed to be here. And I, I got over my intimidation uh, of working for Groucho Marx. 
but I never, I, it never became pedestrian, and I certainly never took it for granted. And I was always reminded when the the uh, star, what is it? What are the the, the, the celebrity vans that go Starline Tours? When the Starline tour bus would stop outside Groucho's house, and you would hear, you know, this is the house of comedian Groucho Marx, of the famous Marx Brothers, and I would think. I know what they're what it's like for them. And if I happened to be in the kitchen, I would wave through the lattice work uh at the window so that they could go back to Milwaukee and say, "I think Groucho waved at me. I'm not sure." Cuz I I knew what it was like for them or if fans would come to the door. Um I I always kept one toe on the outside looking in. So it never became run of the mill. And, you know, between Aaron's volatility and the ever-changing panoply of interesting people that came and went, um, it, it was always a, a stimulating atmosphere and, that I knew had to end, but I, I, I expected it to end from my first day there because of his age and frail condition and all that, and yet somehow it became a three-year gig. That's um, uh, truly amazing. It really is uh, the definition of a dream gig. And uh, unfortunately, we lost Groucho 1977, the week Elvis Presley died, where Groucho's death was basically just a footnote back yeah. to more on Elvis and everything. It was just yeah. so sad. I have, uh, it, when I've been out in L.A., I've been into the valley. I've been to where Groucho is uh, interred over, I think it's Eden Cemetery, I believe, in yeah, uh, the San Fernando Valley. Yeah, my parents' remains are. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, because I, I saw I, I saw Lenny Bruce uh, was over there. There's a rumor that uh, Lenny Br did you hear about this about Lenny Bruce's daughter apparently had sex with Freddie Prinze on top of Lenny Bruce's grave? No, I I, I don't know it if that surprised me because <laughs> you know there's a lot of stories about how wild Kitty Bruce was, but uh, I, I have no reason to. Accept it as the gospel, nor reject it as preposterous. <laughs> That's it. it sounds about right with when you learn about Freddie Prince. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, we lost Groucho 1977. And uh, but every then every year in every August, when they start talking about saluting Presley on TCM, or they start the retrospectives, and it has been so and so years since the King died. It's I, I start getting resentful all over again that Groucho got such short shrift um, because it was three days after Presley died and everybody was still dissecting what that meant to the world and it was like, oh and by the way Groucho Marx died. We'll be back with more coverage of the death of Elvis Presley after these messages. But it wasn't over because you still had the conservatorship and, and, and like I said, we're running out of time here. So you can read yeah. that in the book, Raised Eyebrows. But uh, eventually Aaron, Aaron Fleming lost the conservatorship, uh, went over to uh, Arthur Marks, that side. Arthur, for folks who don't know, was also a – he was a writer, a sitcom writer. He, he wrote one of the most scathing books about Bob Hope, uh, came out when Bob Hope was still alive. And it's one of those yeah. where it's like, so Bob Hope did this, he entertained the troops, and let me tell you what he also did. And here's Larry yeah. Gelbart, who is going to corroborate these stories. Yeah, he did the same thing with Martin and Lewis. He said Dean Martin considered uh, making love about as sacred as blowing your nose. <laughs> Jeez. I'll leave you with that image. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, that... Um, <laughs> So, but yeah, so eventually that was taken over. There was a whole fight in the early 1980s, and Erin yeah. eventually lost her life uh, to herself uh, in 2003. Yeah. And uh, just, uh, yeah, just she, had she had legitimate psycho. I mean, it, it isn't just like, oh, and then there was this crazy lady. She was clinically diagnosed as schizophrenic, and she took recreational drugs in addition to the drugs she was prescribed. So if she went off the prescription drugs, hold on to your hats. Mm. And if she increased the recreational ones, so and of course after Groucho died, uh, you know her friends in quotes scattered because they no longer had to put up with you know the dragon that was guarding the treasure. And it, it was a very sad ending. You know she spiraled downward. She was homeless for a while. 
and uh, ended up in a, in a board and care facility and uh, finally shot herself mm. in uh, 2003. In the, sh- in the shadow of the Hollywood sign, which was, yes, what a yeah. metaphor. In a movie, you would say that's too corny, and yet the, the board and care facility was just down the hill from the Hollywood sign. So a very, you know, and I, and I continue to have mixed feelings about her because Groucho was crazy about her, and I will always credit her with my having gotten the job. I would never have been hired if it hadn't been for her, but that doesn't excuse or forgive the... Uh, the way she treated a lot of people, but specifically, you know, my aging hero. Absolutely. So. And, well, and you mentioned the, the movie. Uh, there is a movie in development, though. Yeah. I, I think I saw something that Rob Zombie, not a part of it anymore, but uh, a movie right. in development been, over the book. He had been, uh, and he's a great guy, and we had a really flawless um, team uh uh, he, and we're still pals, which is great, and we still send emails about B. Lugosi films and stuff. But the, but the production company is still very much uh, interested and re-upped the option with me and are working hard to land it somewhere. So it's still very much in play. It's just that uh, Rob ha- has left the scene. But, you know, this happens so often in uh, trying to get from the page to the screen, you know, you always hear, well, originally this guy was set and then it went over to MGM and then they and then they had a change in leadership there and it sat for a while. Now you have Netflix, so I, Hulu, Amazon, yeah. all these other different outlets to put a movie out. I mean, even people are putting them on YouTube now. Well, we haven't gotten to that point yet, but, <laughs> but we'll see. Our series of slides, maybe, or film strips, like in school. So, but anyway, but Steve, hey, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, raised eyebrows, my ears inside Groucho's house. Uh, I please, if you can humor me before we sign off, can you please promote your book again and your website? But do it as Sig Ruman. <laughs> do it as Sig Ruman. They don't know who Sig Ruman is, even though he was in a night at the opera and a day at the races and other motion pictures. Well, you can order a signed copy of Raised Eyebrows at Steve Stolier, S-T-O-L-I-A-R.com. Or if you want to Kindle, not the Kindle, that means the children. Kindle <laughs> is like to set fire to something, but not book burning. Uh, I've lost my place. Oh, Amazon has the Kindle and also the audio book. Hello? I must be going. I cannot stay. I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going. But I said you must be-